Hi everyone, welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Ashlyn Asiri, and today we are joined by Mr. John Apino to discuss job contract basics. Mr. Apino, thank you so much for joining us today. Ashley, thank you for having us. We love doing uh, content like this and, uh, and providing information, so we appreciate you having us. Great. Well, today we're discussing a topic that's important for every physician, job contracts. Regardless of academic or private practice tracks, understanding and potentially negotiating your contract is critical. In this podcast, we'll go through the basics required to understand contract language, specific aspects you might want to include in a contract, and how to spot red flags. This podcast is the first in a two-part series, and the next episode will focus on contract negotiations. So before we begin, I'd like to introduce our guest speaker. Mr. John Pino has a background in both pre-medical education and business. He has worked in multiple healthcare startups, and in 2011, he launched his most recent company, Contract Diagnostics, after obtaining his MBA. He's passionate about the education of physicians with regards to the non-clinical aspects of medicine, and his business strives to help physicians navigate the all-important business aspects of a successful career. Today, we're going to use his knowledge and experience in physician contracts to shed some light on this topic, so let's get started. John, before we even receive a contract, how do we approach mentioning the items we want addressed in a contract? Should we say these things up front, or should we wait to see what the initial contract looks like? It's a great question. And, you know, of, of course, uh, and this goes for, for lots of topics in this, um, uh, under this banner, but it, it's all dependent. Uh, some places will offer a letter of intent. If that's, if that's the case with this, with your employment, obviously discussing things in the letter of intent is super important to make sure that everyone's on the same page. You know, whether you go for a site visit, um, you know, having a good discussion, then if they offer a letter of intent, great idea to bring all of the things up in the letter of intent that you have questions on. Usually those things are around compensation. So typically those things are negotiated up front or discussed up front and not before you even get the contract. And of course, the way that you have the site visit before that can even set the frame as far as what you let them know as far as procedures that you want to do or how much call you're willing to take. Or, you know, if you're talking about numbers on the, uh, on the initial site visit. And then, you know, when you get the formal contract, it's important, obviously, to figure out what's standard, what's not standard, and then what are the things that you should uh, have a conversation with them. But I, I think it's it's a it's a long, comprehensive process, and I guess a long answer to say it's good to have a conversation with them upfront on what you're looking for. Um, but at the end of the day, some of those things are just verbal promises, and it's all about what the contract actually says. Right. So we all know that contracts are dense and frankly intimidating to review and let alone understand. Um, so let's say that you've done your letter of intent process um, and now you have a contract in hand. How do you even get started on understanding the language in these things? Oh, well, I mean, we, so we've seen anything between a contract, you know, for one or two pages. And we've seen them, I think our record uh, for what we've seen is 76 pages. So uh, you're right. They can get very dense. Uh, there are a lot of things, of course, from you know, what lingo could be in there. A lot of, they're written by attorneys typically. So of course, having a good understanding of what some of those uh, language things mean uh, can be daunting. And physicians don't typically get a whole lot of training on that when they go through uh, their medical training. So having a company that can you know, review that with you and understand it, there's lots of great information online, um, is super important when it comes to understanding the specific language in them. Um, 
at the end of the day, I, with any contract, um, we tell everyone to look out for what the expectations are in a, a physician agreement. It's typically expectations on what you're going to do for them and then what they're going to do for you. So, you know, those expectations from you to them, of course, is uh, you'll give them your time and uh, your expert opinion and you'll take call and you'll do procedures and maybe have block time for procedures and maybe work at one place or the next. Um, the expectations from them to you is, uh, of course, compensation and benefits. So those things should be very detailed, very granular, um, and you should understand everything around those two variables. The, uh, the rest of it, of course, termination, what happens if you want to go a different direction, those are all things that are super important. And sometimes you're right, it's hard with the language to understand what it says, but sometimes it's even more difficult about what it doesn't say. And again, whether it's two pages or 70 plus pages, um, they can be daunting. Um, typically, those academic contracts can be on the shorter end. And just because they're short and maybe somewhat standard doesn't mean that they don't contain a lot of information or they don't leave out a lot of information or reference lots of policies, which can be additional <laughs> dense documents to uh, to review. And sometimes if a contract is 70 pages, it repeats the same thing over and over, or it has conflict from one section to the next. So I, I hate to say, take it section by section when reviewing these things, once you actually get them and understanding them section by section. Um, but of course, the important things are just understanding what their expectations are of you and having reasonable expectations of them, of course, regarding compensation, benefits, and, and, and such. So those things should definitely be very clear to everybody. So you touched a little bit on pay structure already. Can you explain what typical pay structure looks like and maybe some of the variations you've seen? Are there any specific things that you've seen that would not be ideal in terms of pay structure? With regards to pay structure, of course, some places offer a base salary. Some places offer a base salary and a bonus structure. Um, if that's the case, of course, the bonus structure can be based on RVUs. It can be based on... Um, it can be based on collections. It can be based on quality or value pay. There can be accountable care pay. You know, and other things, of course, that would be involved in a pay structure would be a signing bonus or, or student loan reimbursement. You know, benefits can play a big role in terms of pay structure. If you're an independent contractor, it can be dramatically different than a W-2 employee. Um, and a W-2 employee could have potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of benefits that would you know, not be included maybe in a base salary. Um, so there's just a lot of different things that can go into a pay structure. But if you just looked at like a typical, you know, how do I get paid? Well, uh, you know, a base salary, maybe a bonus. Um, we, for like, you know, for otolaryngology, we see a lot of, uh, a lot of RVU structures. So maybe a base salary of X dollars, anything over a certain threshold, uh, you would be paid a RVU bonus. So those are just a, a fraction of the types of structures that we would see on our end. As far as things that would be not ideal, uh, one thing that we don't like to see is salaries that are just flat and there is no incentive for doing additional work. And if that's the case, that's okay. We typically like to see those structures escalate over time. So if your salary, I'm just going to use some round numbers, your salary is 350000 We wouldn't want 350000 with no bonus for three years. We would want three fifty thousand. If there's no bonus, that's okay. But as your value to the group or the hospital grows over time, as you establish the you know in the community, as the patients get to know you, as you develop your practice, 
we think it's fair if it jumps from three six or three fifty to maybe three seventy five, maybe four hundred over those three years. And then when you go to renegotiate at the end of the thirty six months, there'd be additional room on top of that, and you'd be negotiating from a higher position. Or if you left and went to a different practice, of course, the first question they're always going to ask is, "What's your pay?" And if you can say it's four hundred after three years with some experience versus three fifty with some experience, the story becomes a lot different at the end of the. Uh, the term. So there's a lot of different things that we see. Um, but if I just had to say, what would I not want to see? Um, I, we don't like to see salaries that are flat with no bonus structure for longer than expected. Great. So there's obviously a lot of variation across even different practices and specifically between academic and private practice groups. Um, can you give us some trends that you've been seeing recently in pay structure for ENT specifically? Yeah. Um, it's an interesting time, you know, as we record this, um, you know, what late June, it's an interesting time with, with, uh, you know, COVID-19 pandemic and where we are in that process with all physicians. Um, but just over the years with regards to ENT, we haven't seen any big fluctuations like we have with other specialties. Um, you know, we continue to see, especially if you're doing like a fellowship and you're a subspecialist, uh, sometimes depending on your, your niche and your ability to want to do a hundred percent that niche or do something else, we are sometimes seeing uh, a little bit of challenge with some physicians finding a group that just needs them for that one niche. Um, but we are seeing a lot of hospitals that are doing more employed models with ENT now versus just having, you know, private practice groups or those big multi-specialty groups. Um, so we're seeing, you know, but I would, I would bet, you know, as in terms of like the percent, we still see the vast majority of, of, uh, otolaryngologists going, going into like private groups or multi-specialty groups versus going into an academic practice or even an employed hospital practice. Um, and of course, those salaries tend to be lower on the front end than um, than like a hospital employed situation. So, you know, just to you know, in, in a in a nutshell, across the country, we'd see salaries in private practice from you know three hundred to on the low end to maybe four four and a quarter on the high end, typically with bonus structures on top of that. And then as a partner, they can sometimes make um, uh, you know in, you know increments above that if and when they become a partner. For a hospital-employed group, we're sometimes seeing fantastic deals. The long-term potential might not be there, but it's you know it's a better short-term play. So we might see hospital deals anywhere from you know four, four and a quarter. We've seen upwards of six, six fifty for a hospital-employed uh, uh, ENT. They typically have good benefits, but of course the upside is not there, and there's usually not an, an ownership option for for anything. And of course, it varies a lot based on how many procedures you're doing and how busy the practice is. And if they've got, you know, one other physician or if they've got a group of four or five or six or more. Um, so we're seeing you know, a, a good range, but it has been fairly uh, stable over the past. It's not one of the specialties that we have seen dramatically impacted by COVID, at least as much as some other specialties like plastic surgery or dermatology or, um, or orthopedic surgery even. Um, so we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a good mix in terms of, uh, in terms of salaries, just, just all depends on what the individual physician wants. And if they want to be in a market with, you know, two or 3 million people or more, or if they're willing to go to those markets that have a hundred to 300,000, we're seeing really good deals 
in markets that have you know populations of 100 to 300,000 in catchment areas of maybe 200,000 to 650 or 700,000 those typically tend to be really good places where you can find a good quality private practice group that you know kind of runs everything and has a pretty high rev rate yeah. So you, you mentioned that, you know, obviously there are a lot of variables when we think about pay structure. It's not just your base salary that we think about. And to complicate things more, a lot of us going into either private practice or academic medicine, pay structure is really just one aspect of the many things that we're interested in when we're looking at our contracts. So what are some of the specific things or just an overview outside of pay that you expect to see addressed in a contract? We can split it up between private practice and academic medicine. They tend to be similar, just worded differently as far as like what we would like to see. So like I said earlier, we think that the expectations should be clear because when expectations are not clear, that's typically when contracts don't work out or employment doesn't work out. So you know, when physicians want to leave employment, it's usually because they don't feel they're being paid appropriately or they feel, they feel like they're working too much or it's not a good fit. And a lot of times those things can be clarified with reasonable expectations in the discussion up front. So if it comes to how much call you're going to take, or if it comes to if it's a you know, typical 40 hours a week, if it's Monday through Friday, if it's 36 hours with patients or 28 hours or 40 hours with patients, how they do holiday rotations, what happens if, an, if a colleague leaves and what happens to the call burden or what happens to the, the practice um, as far as your expectations regarding your time. And those things should be clear in any contract. If it's academics, you know, we typically don't see as much detail on those, but we might see something like 80% of your time is clinical, 20% of your time is research or academics, or, you know, we might see it broken up even further. Obviously, we like to see the 80% broken up in terms of how you're going to allocate, allocate your clinical time. So if that's, you know, four, four days a week, or if it's eight half-day sessions, we typically like to see that. If there's block time based on you know, your, uh, your position, we'd love to see that documented in the agreement. Um, if you are going to supervise a nurse practitioner or a PA, we want to know if that's a benefit to you. So if you're a clinician doing ambulatory care, that, that might hinder you and cause you to be home later. So we'd like to have compensation for supervising nurse practitioners or PAs. And of course, we'd like them to gain your permission before they just allocate one, two, or three of those individuals to you uh, because, of course, you trade time for money and that might require more time. Uh, if you are doing a lot of procedures and they those individuals can go run your clinic, it might make you more productive in the OR. So maybe those are a benefit to you and it, it, it makes you more efficient and more productive. So, But that should be clear in the contract if you do or do not want to uh, supervise those individuals. We do see in academic contracts, we'll see research funding. So, you know, maybe there might be a certain dollar amount up front. Sometimes we'll see a certain dollar amount guaranteed for three years, and then it's up to the physician to continue the, the funding through, you know, through uh, either through providing a return on the investment or through providing additional outside grants. Um, obviously, having things like malpractice insurance and having that very clear if it's an occurrence, pract occurrence policy or a claims policy or a modified claims policy, there can be a lot of differences with malpractice coverage. And then having clear termination provisions is another thing outside of pay that we would like to see in the contract. So how can I terminate? 
um, if you want to leave? How could I be terminated if they don't want me there or if I'm no longer welcome or if I've done something wrong or if there's a pandemic? Um, you know, having a clear expectation of how I could get out uh, would be would be important. Um, obviously, what are the restrictions if it is terminated and I don't work here? Can I do I have a non-compete? Uh, can I work within a 10 mile radius or in a 20 mile radius? If I'm with a private practice, you know, can I go do academics or go to the VA? Um, you know, do I have to move if I'm not going to work for you guys? Those are, you know, super important uh, things that we would love that you know, we typically do see in all contracts, whether they're clear or not is a whole nother uh, discussion, but sometimes we'll see them referenced, but the documents aren't clear as far as, you know, what the expectations are, or it may be clear in some instances, but not clear in other instances, for example, termination and who buys tail or does the non-compete become effective or not? So th those are just a fraction of things outside of pay that we typically like to see. We don't usually see like benefits very granular in a document, but we'll see a reference to them. And if that's the case, we typically just tell the physician to make sure that they understand the benefits and get a copy of whatever policy it is. But those are some things that we don't always see in contracts are the benefits. But I mean, everything else should be very clear to the physician. Right. So that kind of leads me into my next question is, are there specific items that you actually frequently find that are missing from a contract, whether that be something that is overlooked or something that's more purposefully left vague? That's a great question. So um, we do see, you know, we, we spent a lot of time already today talking about expectations on your time. And a lot of employers do not want to document it. They want to leave it vague. And some of that is just fluidity. So as things change on their end, if your contract says, you know, you're working from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m. and there's no changes and call is one in four, if all of a sudden someone has a baby and call goes to one in three or if someone leaves the practice or retires early or if they hire someone, call may go to one in three or one in five. And so do they need to redo the contract? So Sometimes those things like call and schedule are left vague. Um, a lot of times the physicians will request if it maybe the contract isn't isn't as granular around those things, but it says with mutual agreement, or maybe call is defined as equal, but maybe it's no greater than one in four unless they get approval and then they receive compensation for it. So sometimes those things are left vague. Um, we generally see benefits that aren't very clear, like I said, in contracts, and they can typically change. So maybe the benefits are, you know, might be defined in the contract as you'll have benefits and the benefits can change at any time. That may be the only reference to benefits in the entire agreement. Um, with academics, there's typically a lot more, uh, a lot more left out. They may not have anything about your call or about your clinical schedule. They may not have anything about termination and how you can even quit or walk away. It may reference additional policies. So it may say, you know, you need to, if for moonlighting, see the moonlighting policy. And then you maybe do or don't have it. It may say for the restrictive covenant, see the staff bylaws or see the restrictive covenant agreement. And we don't have that. So sometimes those things are left out in the academic contract. But of course, when it's more like a two or a three page letter versus like a formal contract, it just is a lot different. And a lot of those details are left out, which means that you, as the physician just needs to do a lot more due diligence because there are no details on those things. So it's not that they don't exist or they're not important. It just means that the physician needs to do a little more due diligence in the process to make sure they understand those things. 
So let's say we have a contract that has a major point that's either vague or missing entirely, something like termination and regulations around that. How do we pin that down? Um, Do we have to have it written into the contract? Is that something we should ask for? So typically, those things are generally documented somewhere. If it's not in the formal agreement, it might be in a policy manual somewhere. The physician should get a copy of that to request to see it. Um, if there's a SOP somewhere or a policy manual, they should understand that. Um, you know, just we would hate to have a physician go to terminate an agreement and and not understand how to do so, or think that they can do so by giving two weeks, and maybe there's something hidden somewhere they can only terminate on an academic year, or they need to give six months' notice, and yet they told their next job they'd be there in three months. So if it's not in the contract. It should be documented somewhere. If it's if you can't find it documented anywhere, then we think it's a good idea to make sure that you connect with whomever your contact person is at the account and make sure that they clarify that to you and let you know that, you know, if you do want to walk away, you just need to give us two weeks or two months or six months. So at least there's an understanding on what that process would look like. Um, so even if something like that is left out, I mean, if... You know, if the schedule is left out and it's okay with the physician, they're not overly concerned with it, then I don't think it's a big deal to over-index. But if the termination is left out or if you have malpractice insurance, uh, if you have to buy your tail coverage or not, I mean, those things could be very costly if you didn't understand that up front. And so we think that that makes sense to find the answers to that before you move forward and sign the agreement. So now we've talked about what might be missing. Um, what are some things that you've seen in contracts that you would think uh, or deem red flags or something that should be removed from contracts? Lots. I mean, it's always about risk versus reward. You know, something's red flags means this is horrible, don't sign. Um, but it, usually the red flags are things that we typically see. They're just not in your best interest. I'll, I will tell you one thing that we are seeing more is a contract that says, we just got done talking about termination. So typically a contract will say either party can terminate and there's a certain notice given, right? So it just, you can quit or they can tell you to leave. That notice is typically 60, 90 or 120 days. And usually it's, it's, it's historically, it's just been at any time, right? At any time, either party can terminate with 60 or 90 or 120 days. Sometimes it's longer in academics. Sometimes it might be shorter for an independent contractor position. Uh, we have started to see, and it's still the vast minority, but we have started to see contract language that says after the initial term, either party can terminate with 60, 90, or 120 days. So then it becomes a question of what's the initial term. And if the initial term is two years, does that mean that you can't leave for two years? Does that mean that they, you know, if it's three years or five years, you can't leave for three years or five years? So it's some of those small language things like that that would be important. So if, for example, let's say that you're going to take a job and it's as you, your, your, um, your, your significant other is doing a fellowship for one year and then uh, the two of you are going to move from one state to the next. Well, if your contract is a three-year contract and it says after the initial term, either party can terminate with 60 days notice, you may not be able to get out of that contract when your spouse finishes your, uh, their fellowship. So... It's important to know some of those small details that maybe for your story, if your story is, I want to be there forever, it may not be a a red flag or a big deal. If your story is, I'm going to leave in a year or in two years or after my J1 waiver is processed or, you know, fill in the blank, 
then those things might be a red flag. So it's, you know, it's, it's easy. We, we can throw out like all kinds of red flags about not having call capped. So if, you know, if you're doing call one and four and two people leave and it's one and two, that could be a red flag for some people. Other people might think that's fantastic. They get to do more work and make more money if they have that uh, production bonus in their, in their contract. I mean, those are just a couple of things that maybe depending on the story might be considered a red flag. Um, I do think that a any employer that gives you a contract or a contracting entity, if it's an independent contract or a contract, uh, anybody who gives you a contract and says, here's the agreement, we'd like to have it back in two days, and they give you a short window to review it, I would almost deem that to be a red flag. I would assume that anybody would want you to do due diligence and not rush you through forcing you into signing an agreement. I understand if they've got other candidates that they need to inform either way, but I would consider that sometimes a red flag. Or if you go to ask questions on the contract after having having a full review and understanding what questions and due diligence should be done, if you get pushback on them wanting to answer those questions, I would almost think that would be a red flag. I would, I would assume that any employer would encourage a potential future um, partner or employee or associate to do all the due diligence to make sure it's a good fit for everybody involved. And so anybody who wouldn't be willing to share details and information and have a good, a good conversation with a candidate on clarifying things or you know, whether they change things or not, maybe just clarifying things, um, that would be deemed a red flag, I think, as well, if they were unable, unwilling to have that conversation. And then, of course, I mean, we, we could talk all day. We could talk red flags for compensation and not knowing when the compensation is paid. If it's discretionary bonuses, it's discretionary. You may or may not receive it. If it if there's a bunch of things that reference policies and manuals, but you don't have the policies and the manuals, um, you know, those maybe wouldn't be red flags, but just something that the physician should definitely evaluate further. So it sounds like everything else in life, you have to have your priorities in line and figure out what's important for you and then make sure that a contract kind of appropriately addresses those or aligns with your needs and wants. Once you kind of figure that out for your own personal situation, is there a way to look at other contracts that exists out there to compare um, to see if quote unquote, you're getting a good deal? Um, is there something that exists like a contract depository? So not I, not to my knowledge, risk is risk, right? Termination, non-competes, tail insurance, all those things are important to understand. But if a physician is looking at comparing like the compensation, there's data out there in various places. Sometimes the online data is biased or the you know, the survey data has, you know, there's, there's survey bias with people who take the surveys or don't take the surveys or how they combine, you know, big regions into, uh, into areas and they compare, you know, rural Alabama with, you know, Miami and the same data set. To my knowledge, there's no formal way to like, you know, put your contract, upload it and say, my risk score is a nine out of 10 versus, you know, the average in this market is a, a seven. So I have more risk. Um, but I think just still understanding everything uh, around the contract is still important, of course. And you know, if, if nothing else, understanding that time for money equation, which again, you can get good, good information online or through, uh, through a, a consulting firm or talking to friends or program directors or, or, uh, or those kind of places for that information. But n- not, a, not a defined de- repository, I don't think, but it would be kind of cool to have. Yeah, I, I think, you know, having access to the internet over the last 
20 plus 30 years um, has kind of created some transparency in other fields, but it seems like contract management and and salary has still remained somewhat opaque. And so I think having information either from an advisor um, or someone else in the field who may have data about uh, to, to at least compare to may be useful for individuals. One thing that I'll throw out there is some people think, you know, if the employer or it's academics and they don't feel it's negotiable. Um, I'll tell everyone, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't ask a lot of questions. So even if you're given a contract and someone says, look, this contract is non-negotiable, we are not going to change it, the salary is not going to change, it's what everybody else has, that's fine. It doesn't mean that you should just sign it and send it back without understanding it, or it doesn't mean that you shouldn't ask a lot of questions. So, um, you know, even if the compensation doesn't change, you know, there's a lot of questions you could ask around how it changes over time. What should my expectations be? What's the range in the department? How did you come up with this number that I'm not going to ask you for more on? You know, um, you know, I, I, there's still a lot of questions that you could ask around it, even if no question is, can I have more? I, there's still like a lot of due diligence that should be done, even if it's a, quote, standardized contract or they're not going to change or negotiate compensation. It's still something important to have good conversation around. So we kind of touched upon getting help from outside and understanding these things and even navigating uh, negotiations, which we'll touch on on our next podcast episode. But for someone who's looking to get some help with a contract review or even negotiations, how would they go about finding an expert to help? Uh, It's a great question. We think that everybody should have their contracts reviewed. Um, Just... I mean, if nothing else, just so they un- you guys understand the amount of money that a physician's put into themselves to get to this point, and then the amount of money that they'll earn over a career or even over a two-year job contract is significant. And having uh, somebody to guide them through what that looks like to avoid any undue risk is important. Even if it's a standard copy-paste contract and there's nothing that's going to be changed, spending a little bit of money to understand it and make sure that they have the right questions to ask is, is super vital. And uh, we've just talked to way too many people with the conversation saying, I wish I would have talked to you guys before, or I wish I would have had things looked at, or, you know, I got screwed over uh, to the tune of 80,000 or 120,000. And maybe those things could have been avoided if they just would have had it reviewed appropriately for a few hundred dollars. So everything should be looked at. Now, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's some great books out there um, that I know people can find. There are some great resources um, out there as far as, you know, podcasts like this that have interviewed people or, um, I don't know if there's like a formalized course out there. Um, there are company, there's law firms, of course, which do a fantastic job and they would be state specific. So, you know, if there's, you know, a state specific attorney in a certain state, if you think the, the agreement uh, might, might need a state specific person, they might not be the best with compensation, but they could help you with those state specific issues. Um, and then there's companies that we, at contract diagnostics, we just review contracts. So, you know, there's companies like, like ours out there. And I always tell everyone, whether you work with us or a different firm or a local attorney, um, just have everything reviewed. And, you know, just if nothing else to understand the expectations from both parties. So there's no surprises um, because it's not good for anybody if there are surprises and the physician's transitioning earlier than he or she thought. It's not good for the patients. It's not good for the community. It's not good for the physician and their, uh, you know, their career, their pocketbook unless it's you know, pre-planned that way. And even if that's the case, they should still understand everything so they know what their obligations will be in two years or three years when they plan on leaving. So there's a lot of options out there. 
Um, and, uh, you know, physicians spend a lot of money and a lot of time educating themselves. And unfortunately, this is not one of the things that they get uh, educated around too much. So they've got to take additional um, effort and do it uh, and educate themselves on this, which are some great resources out there. Um, I don't know that any of it is all 100% comprehensive because every physician's story is a little bit different. And that's why I think having, you know, some body to go over things with you on a one-on-one basis would be definitely, would, would be vital and important for everybody. Yeah. So let's say we're kind of at the point where we've gone through the contract with somebody, um, we understand the terms, but we want something changed within the contract. And we're going to touch upon this on our next episode, but how do we start that process or how do we formulate a plan to make those changes? I think how and when to have this conversation is a fantastic question that we get all the time. What we think is a good idea is, you know, go through everything yourself, formulate your questions, have it reviewed with somebody who knows what they're doing and understands physician contracts and uh, run those questions by that individual and then formulate, you know, the other questions. So now you've got five questions or 10 questions or 20 questions. We think a phone call with the potential employer makes the most sense. So um, we like it if you email every email the account, if it's the recruiter, if it's the head of the department, if it's the uh, CEO of the small hospital, if it's one of your potential future partners or your boss as a physician, you know, reaching out to that individual on email or text message and saying, hey, I've had everything looked at. When can we talk? Now you have a dedicated time, not when they're running into a patient room or running to a, a private event or running to a you know, a soccer game or on the way home in their car when it's raining, but you've got dedicated time where they're sitting waiting for your call and you have your questions and you call them and just, you, you do your due diligence, just like when you talk with the patient, right? You go in looking for information and then using that information to formulate your response. So, uh, you, you have your conversation and you know, you ebb and flow with their answers. So for example, if you ask them about compensation and they tell you, well, everyone starts at the same. You can scratch out the question on, can I have more compensation? Because you know the answer is no. And then we think having that conversation in a very uh, friendly, very transparent way is, is, is a good idea. And then sending a follow-up email afterwards saying, thank you so much for your time. In summary, we discussed ABCD and you said, you know, you know, X, Y, and Z and agreed to change, you know, uh, P. And I hope that we can finalize everything by this particular date. Now we've got, you know, they know you've had it looked at. They know you've got questions. You've had a great conversation with them. You've documented it in an email to see if you've misunderstood anything. And then you set a time frame with them on when you want to move forward. So we're not delaying the process or taking too long. And, you know, if, if it's going to take them two months to get back from a board meeting and have the attorneys, then they'll let you know on email. It's going to take us a little while to get back to you on this. But at least then you know you're not just kind of sitting out there. So it's definitely a process. And I look forward to digging into it on the uh, on the next podcast. Thank you so much. I think that was a great overview on phase one of managing a contract, which is basically collecting data um, about the contract itself, understanding what it says, but also kind of figuring out what your own priorities are and making sure everything aligns. Um, So thank you so much for walking us through that. In our next episode, as we've mentioned, we'll get into contract negotiations. But before we wrap up this episode, uh, do you have any final parting words of wisdom? No, I mean, I, I, I think that's contracts in a nutshell. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Um, this wraps up our episode of ENT in a nutshell. Thanks for listening and we will see you next time.